I love weddings. As a pastor, I had the great privilege to uh, officiating many weddings and, and getting invited to numerous weddings. I can love, I can say I love weddings for many reasons. The first, probably obvious, is the food. The food is delicious, and there is a plethora of it. Uh, I never had uh, shrimp and grits, the famous shrimp and grits of the South, until I got married on July 31st, 2004. Uh, it's amazing when you see two families uh, who are forever kind of linked together as they watch new families, uh, a new family formed. And, and weddings are beautiful. You know, from the flowers to the tuxes to the bridesmaid dresses, there's an intentional beauty that comes at weddings. Really like nowhere else. The care and the, the, the intentionality of making things beautiful. As our culture kind of begins to become more and more casual, we've kind of lost really the sense of occasion. But not so at weddings. We know that when it's a wedding, it's time to, to put on our, our best. There's an excitement that's there. Uh, there's also a lot of dancing. And y'all, I love to dance. I know it's odd for, for a Baptist preacher to stand before you, ones who are known to be maybe strict and serious, but I love to dance. One of the, of the joys that my wife and I have, uh, have at weddings is, is to dance together. And uh, there's been several times when we've left the dance floor to a standing ovation, right? It's our goal. Uh, one of the highlights of my life is realizing that the skill of, of really, we're not really the greatest dancers. We just have no shame on the floor. That's uh, the key for dancing. And I realized that the joy that I had um, about six years ago when my brother got married, uh, my, my son, John David, was three years old. And at that time, he just went all out. The boy danced literally for three straight hours. He was dancing so well that I couldn't even dance because I was watching him the entire time. My genes are alive. <laughs> but when, when you go to a wedding, all these things I'm talking about, there is nothing like when the bride walks down the aisle. There is nothing more beautiful at the wedding. Everyone knows that because when the bride walks down the aisles, Tears well up. Smiles are formed. It's magical to see the beauty of a bride as she approaches her beloved at the altar. The years of waiting and planning and uh, expecting have ending, and the celebration is about to begin. See, weddings are all about celebration. In our wedding, uh, almost 14 years ago, um, was, was so fun that People still come up and talk to me, that the people I see in town who are at the wedding, about how great of a time it was. There's something about a wedding that brings out the best of humanity. Well, I think that we need that more and more in our day. Because what do we see day in and day out? We really see the worst of our humanity, right? Whether it's a school shooting or bombings or the, 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 the negative political discourse of not being able to have civil conversations with one another. We see sexual abuse and the, the, the harsh treatment of women, mocking and scoffing. The worst of humanity is highlighted day in and day out, but not so in weddings. When you go to a wedding, you kind of forget about how bad everything else is out there, and you come and you celebrate. They're glorious and they're happy. I believe it's the best of humanity. And I believe it is the best of humanity because I think it gives us a picture of what is to come. Every wedding is a preview 
of the great wedding, when we, the church, the bride of Christ, will be finally united with our beloved. A few years ago, I was interviewed by the Rock Hill Herald. I was a new pastor, 32, and I was conducting my first Easter services here. And they said, well, what do you expect when you come to your first Easter services? And uh, there's a part of me that kind of wanted to just say, well, every Sunday is the same. Every Sunday is East, is Resurrection Sunday where we celebrate the, the resurrection of our Lord. And I am firmly in agreement with that. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But I, I think that I was just trying to deny what everyone else knows. There's something different about Easter, right? There's a sense of an occasion, a sense of excitement, right? You go out and you get a new dress and you wear, you, you wear that pink tie that you would never dare wear anywhere else, right? Or a bow tie or uh, pink pants, Braden. Um, you know, today is a day when we kind of bring joy, right? Celebrate what God has done for us in the resurrection of Christ. It brings out the best of our faith because it reminds us of our, of our greatest joy and hope. So today I pray that I will help you remind you of that great joy. Remind you to celebrate Easter and in hope in some way to help you capture how to have that joy each and every Sunday throughout the year. Really, just two points this morning. Uh, the first, the great multitude shout in the resurrection. The great multitude shout in the resurrection. Revelation 19 is kind of the culmination of history. You've seen all these judgments fall upon the city of man in, in Babylon. Uh, the Christians have been neglected and abused for their faith. And here their suffering finally ends and it leads to a shout of joy. Look back with me in the text in verse 1 of Revelation 19. This is after this what I've seen to be I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of the great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong and power belong to our God. For His judgments are just and true. He has judged the great prostitute who had corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down, worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Many of you have probably heard the word Hallelujah before. It really comes from a Hebrew word, uh, two Hebrew words, which means praise Yahweh, Hallelujah, praise uh, Yahweh, praise the Lord. You know, although it's a common word in our, in our, even in our secular world, it's the only, only time in the New Testament that it appears is right here in Revelation 19. It's a fitting celebration to the end of history when God's salvation finally arrives. God is praised for His power, His glory, and his salvation. All these three things, I think, are, are, are really finally pictured in the resurrection of, of Christ. If you're here on Good Friday, we read Luke 23, and three different times you see Jesus pronounced as innocent by Pilate, then Herod, then by Pilate again. There was no guilt found in Christ before his death, and yet he was crucified. And after his death, he was placed in a tomb, and with him the hopes of many of his followers. Now, it's interesting for those of you who are uh, non-believers with us, 
It's interesting to see the change of what happens with the, the, the early followers of Jesus. Because after the early, when Jesus Christ died, many just kind of scattered and left. Two disciples in, in particular said, well, our hope is gone. And instead of staying in Jerusalem, they started going back home to Emmaus. Some, something changed from, from Friday when Jesus died to Sunday morning. Well, what changed was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians believe that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. He, was, he arose. The, there was an empty tomb there. Now, I'm not going to give you all the historical reasons of why that is a, is a valid, legitimate claim. Uh, I just want you to see that there was a change in the disciples. Something radically changed among them. They went from cowering in fear to boldly proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the culmination of Old Testament promises. The glory and the power of God was shown in God's victory over the grave. And in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's not just that he uh, came back to life, but now he promises to bring that salvation to us. When Jesus would speak of his resurrection, he would also speak of his return. So in speaking of the, the resurrection of Christ, you also have to speak of the return of Christ. So in John 14, 1 through 3, uh, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. We see this great picture, right, when Jesus was ascended into heaven. Uh, the disciples were gathered, watching him go, and an angel appeared, and the angel appeared to him in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into the heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So I think it's wise for us as Christians, when we think of the resurrection of Christ, we also think of the return of Christ. God has promised salvation. That salvation will, that, was be, that began at the resurrection will one day be finally completed at his return. So when it says salvation belongs to our God here in, in Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation and power and glory belong to our God. This is salvation that is finally realized. Salvation from persecution, salvation from oppression, salvation from their struggle against sin, salvation from hell itself. So, friend, if you are here and you're not a believer in Christ, you, you don't know this salvation yet. Now, you may ask, when I say you may not have this salvation, you may ask, well, why do I even need salvation? It's a fair question. But I think if you think deeply enough, the answer is quite, quite simple. So my, my kids have uh, enjoyed reading uh, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Um, it's a book, 10-book series, and uh, Netflix came out with a, a new show on it, which is excellent, excellent. I commend it to you, uh, kind of going through the book. And we watched an episode last night, and it's going over the fourth book, The Austere Academy. Um, and there, the Baudelaire children who are orphans are placed in a school for orphans, the Proof Rock Academy. The model of the school is a Latin phrase, memento moria, meaning, remember, you must die. Now, this is a, a, maybe seems a little bit morbid for a, a kid's uh, show, a kid's book, but the reality is there could be nothing uh, more true. Remember. You 
must die. That's a question all of us face, right? We know that death is coming. And when we die, what will happen? I think it's one of the most important questions anyone will ask. What will happen when you die? As Christians, the reason why this day of Easter is so important for us is because we believe because when we die, we will be raised to be with God because he was raised for us. See, Christians, we, we know we will die. Not only that, we know that we deserve to die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What we earn from our sin is death. We know our sin. We know the inworkings of our heart, our pride, our, 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 the depths of our sin against the holy God. And we know that we deserve his punishment. And here, we even see that. Revelation 19.1, they are shouting, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because God's judgments are true and just. God's judgments are always right. Easter is so glorious to Christians because it gives us hope. Jesus was raised from the dead, showing that God accepted his sacrifice for sin. See, sin cannot be overlooked. God can't just pass over sin. He has to punish it. We know this to be true. Have you ever been, is it a crime ever been committed against you? I'm not sure if, if I've lived in bad places or I'm just an easy target. It could just be that I'm an easy target. Uh, but I have been robbed seven different times in my life. I've had multiple cars stolen. I've had my home ransacked. And several times I've had the opportunity to confront my accuser one time in court. And when you confront those who have stolen from you, do you know what you want? Justice. You want the wrong to be made right. They should face consequences for their actions. That's all of us, right? We, we all know that we are the, the criminals in the scenario against God. And, and we, does, God deserves to punish us rightly for our sin. But the beauty of the gospel story is that, that we will not pay for our crimes. He doesn't give me the justice that I deserve. He gives me mercy. That great Isaac Watts hymn, was it for crimes that I had done, that he, Jesus, groaned upon a tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. See, friend, God's judgments are always true and just. And if justice is true, all crimes must be paid. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ, that in Christ your sin is paid in full. When you repent of your sins and you trust in Christ, you are forgiven. And at the end of history, God will judge all that stand against him, and he will vindicate his servants. You see it right there in verse 2. It says that he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We looked at this the last several weeks. This is kind of, a, kind of a culmination of chapter 17 and chapter 18. The great prostitute is the really the city of man, Babylon, or Rome in this day. It could be maybe a picture of the, the secular city, maybe a New York City or, or a Las, Las Vegas it's the secular city of man. You know, it's interesting how often things begin in a pure fashion and they're quickly perverted for the ends of the secular state. So Easter is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet in America, Easter is no longer about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's it about? It's about looking pretty. It's about Easter eggs, chocolate bunnies. 
You know, I think what the, what the evil one, the spirit of our age, wants you to do, it wants you to trivialize holidays like this so that you won't think about the end that is to come. Then you won't think about what happens when you die. So therefore, you won't think about your only hope of the resurrection. You won't think about the victory over sin and death. You won't think about conquering the devil and his works. This world wants you to trivialize Easter so you will never understand its implications. Friend, it's amazing that this one place in the New Testament that exclaims, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! It is here because God brings the final and decisive victory. The resurrection is the guarantee that the saints, both great and small, will praise His name. From the richest to the poorest, from the famous to the unknown, all those in Christ will rejoice. I mean, are you in that number? Memento moria. Remember, you must die. And when you do, what will happen? Will you shout with the great multitude, Hallelujah! Salvation and power and glory belong to our God. Or will you only hear the shout off in the distance and experience judgment from God? The second thing I want you to see here in this text is the great marriage supper of the resurrection. The great marriage supper in the resurrection. Revelation 19, I think it's a wonderful picture of what God has purchased for us in the resurrection, what God now wants us to do. Hear this glorious invitation. Just, just listen to the promise here. Revelation 19, verse 6. And when I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus, the bridegroom who laid down his life for his bride, the church. And the church here, the bride, has made herself ready. I think one of the forgotten elements when we think about the bride is, is how the bride is preparing for the supper. For anyone who has planned a wedding, you know it takes a lot of work. So I proposed to my wife on a, on a Saturday. Uh, we picked out our china the next day. That's wrong, okay? Um, the, the, that, on the way home, we had to stop, and my wife wanted to go dress shopping. Because you know one of the most important things when you go get married is that you have to say yes to the dress. Well, I think what we have to do is, as, as, as the bride of Christ we have to say yes to the dress. But what is the dress? What is, what is what we put on? We put on what the righteous deeds. You, see, you notice there in verse, um, in verse, end of verse 8, it says, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And notice what it's saying here. It's saying that it was, it was granted, it was gifted on behalf of God that the saints are able to put on the righteous deeds. It's not that we just have to work really hard. No, God has given us the power and His Spirit to actually put on these righteous deeds. I think the great summation of the Christian gospel is Ephesians chapter 2, 
8 through 10. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. I think most will stop there. But verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace through faith. God gets all the glory. No man can boast. But we can't leave out verse 10. We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to put on the righteous deeds, to, to make ourselves ready for that great marriage of the Lamb. As a wife, uh, as, a, as a bride is preparing for that wedding, getting all the things ready for the, for the big day, to get the dress ready, to get the flowers ready. It's what we as Christians are called to do, is to get our lives ready to meet our bridegroom, our beloved, on that day when he calls us to himself. I mean, are you ready for that wedding? I mean, what do you need to do? First, if you're in sin, repent. Turn to Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that there's nothing that can keep you from him except your own pride. Your own pride in saying that you don't need him. But if there is anything that you have done that you think that would, with, because of, of, of its nature, that God would not accept you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. If you turn to Christ, you will be accepted and you will be forgiven. Second, if you're walking with Christ, just continue to walk with him. Hold fast to him. Do not compromise your faith. Continue with him. Go back and reread Revelation 2 and 3. And those who conquer, those who conquer, those who conquer will receive something from the Lord at the end of days. We who conquer will be invited to the glorious supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. And what God has done for us, he wants us to do for others. We have been invited to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And God is preparing a feast. And who did he invite? The passage that John read, Luke 14, God invited the, the spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually crippled, he invited them to rise and walk. He invited the blind to, to believe and see. God came to us, the spiritually crippled, and invited us to his table through his son. The Bible says that because of our own sin, we are deformed of God's original design. We do not walk and upright and see clearly, but our hearts are are corrupt. Even our best offerings before the Lord are only filthy rags in His presence. See, sin affects our whole being. Therefore, it's impossible for us to please God. God sent Jesus as an invitation. He's the only one who can invite us to the meal with the Lord because He's the only one without sin. And yet Jesus gave up His seat and laid down His life as our ransom to bring us to God. He died for us so that we can have a place at his table. And the, the proof is, be, is the resurrection, that God accepted that exchange. You know, I, I was the third born in a family of four, and I was one of the youngest cousins. So we would go to my grandma's house in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, uh, and we would uh, have Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I was always at the kids' table. The, cool, the coolest thing about the kids' table was we had He-Man glasses, right, for cups. Awesome, right? But as you grow up, you're like, I don't really like the kids' table. And then you realize right around versus age 12 or 13 that there is no way for you to move from the kids' table because everybody else is moving up with you, 
right? The only way that you're going to get to the other table is if someone gives up their seat. And guys, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. He gave up his seat to allow us to sit at the table. Sin has crippled you, but Jesus says, I can make you straight. Sin has blinded you, but Jesus says, I can make you see. Jesus is willing to heal you. You must believe in him. He offers the only real invitation to the table that is by faith in his life, death, and resurrection. The invitation has been made. Will you accept it? We accept his invitation by turning to God from our sin. We renounce our pride and our self-centeredness and choose to follow Christ in humility. He invites us. Will you accept his invitation? You know, throughout Revelation, four different times, uh, the, the angels or the Lord tell John, write this down. So when you're reading it on your own, that's kind of cue for us. Pay attention. This is really important. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, write this down, drawing our attention to it, saying, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Blessed. The fourth blessing of seven uh, Beatitudes in this book. It is a blessing to be invited to this supper. I don't know about you, but our family loves to open wedding invitations. You can usually tell it's a wedding invitation because it's a, it's a giant envelope, pretty uh, you know, writing. There's something special about that wedding. You open the invitation. What happens to your heart when you open the invitation? Your heart wants to go, right? I can't wait to go to this, this party. Why? Because I love the people who are getting married. And if you can't make it, what happens to you? Because ah, well, you know it's going to be great. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's me. There was too much laughter there. Um, but listen, you have been given the, the giant invitation of the marriage supper to the Lamb. And when you open it, you want to say, yes, yes, I want to go. He invites you with that glorious invitation. Are you getting ready? Well, if we're getting ready personally for the great supper, this great marriage with the bridegroom, with our beloved, with our Lord Jesus, we should also invite others to join us as, as well. And I love reading stories of conversions and how someone moves and believes in Jesus. Uh, Jim Peterson uh, shares a story of his friend Mario. Now, M Mario was a very intellectual young man. Uh, he was a Marxist. He loved reading Western philosophers. Uh, he would consider himself an atheist. Very intelligent, very gifted. You know, even for all his giftedness, he realized that there was something wrong with him, right? That spiritually he was, he was crippled. So Jim Peterson met with Mario for four years, just reading the Bible and answering his, his questions. Eventually, Mario became a believer. And several years after his conversion, Mario was walking with Jim one day, and he says, you know, do you know why I became a Christian? When I really decided to become a Christian? And he was, Peterson's thinking in his head, I'm sure it was a sermon. I'm sure it was a Bible study that, that I led um, him through. But his answer surprised him. He said this, So remember the first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together. I, I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. And as I sat there observing you and your wife and your children and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have this relationship like this with my fiancé? When I realized the answer was never. 
I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. Peterson reflected on the grace of Christ that Mario saw bind that family together. He said this, Our family was unaware of his influence on Mario. God had done his work with our family without knowing it. We tend to see their weaknesses and incongruities in our lives, and our reaction is to recoil at the thought of letting outsiders close enough to see us as we really are. Even if our assessment is accurate, it is my observation that any Christian who is sincerely seeking to walk with God, in spite of all his flaws, is reflecting something of Christ. As I was um, preparing this message, I really was just welled up with um, tears of gratitude for this congregation. Because I believe that you love to invite people into your lives and around your table. I was just thinking and praying and names kept on coming up of how this person invited that person and, and this person is reaching out to, to a new visitor. And I really was just gripped with gratitude and I just became so thankful to be your pastor. Can I just plead with you to continue to do that? That we would always be a place that opens up our homes to those who are outsiders, that would open up our, our fellowship to people who, who are not like us when they walk into our midst, that our arms are wide open and we want to show them Christ. We want to show them how we have been invited to the table so that they could be invited to the, to the great table at the end of time with our Lord and our Christ. You know, we can never pay God back what he's done for us. But since God has invited us, he's given us the privilege to go and invite others. It's one of the ways that we clothe ourselves with his righteous deeds. It is our fine linen when we are sharing the good news of, of Christ. And that's exactly what the, the apostles did, right? The disciples of the Lord Jesus, when, when, he, when Jesus was arrested, what happened to his disciples? They scattered. They ran. They cowered in fear. And yet, after the resurrection, after Christ was risen, they would stand in front of a king and say, Christ is Lord. Take my life. It doesn't matter. God will raise me up. When you invite outsiders inside to our table, they catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ who is inviting them to eat with them at his table. He has invited you. Will you invite others? So, beloved, I pray this Easter we remember our wedding day. Not our wedding day in the past, but our wedding day in the future. It is coming. Let us get ready. Jesus was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and is coming again. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We have been invited through the resurrection. Now it is our time to get ready. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Father, we come together as a body and we just say hallelujah, salvation and power and glory belongs to our God. We thank you for inviting us to your table. And God, we know that that invitation was made in Christ and in Christ alone. We thank you for the resurrection of our Lord that made it all possible. 
In Jesus' name, amen.